Recently, I came across something about the early history of brewing in Missouri, and I realized that I had a connection to the story. Saverton, Missouri is the village in Rawls County where I grew up. I was born in Hannibal, just seven miles up the river, and I went to school there, and I have an affinity for that town, but Saverton is where I am from. It was never lost on me, the history of the place. Saverton is on this wide bench along the Mississippi, above the floodplain, and it had been a place of camps and settlements from the time of the Paleo-Indians up into the late 18th century, when the Sauk, Fox, and Winnebago people came down from Illinois and Wisconsin to hunt and trade with the French settlers. French frontiersmen began working a salt spring on the village sometime in the late 18th century. Now, while most of the French adventurers in that part of the world were Quebecois in background, there was one exception. A family of nobility from Normandy, led by the patriarch Chevalier Jacques Saint-Vrain, it's spelled Saint-Vrain, V-R-A-I-N, we'll call him Jacques Saint-Vrain, he arrived in the French settlement of Saint-Louis in the Louisiana Territory sometime shortly after the French Revolution. Chevalier Saint-Vrain had been a loyalist and an aristocratic naval captain for the Bourbon dynasty. So sometime between the fall of the Bastille with the arrest of Louis XVI and his subsequent demise on the guillotine, the Chevalier thought it best to head to North America before he, too, had his head removed from its shoulders. The land where my childhood home still stands was first platted out as part of a series of Spanish land grants in the late 1700s, and one of the men who was awarded one of those grants was Jacques Saint-Vrain, and it was he that established the salt works, that is, a camp where naturally occurring saline brine is boiled down down to make salt, which was one of the most important commodities that could be had in an era before refrigeration. Now, around this camp, a trading post in a small village sprung up over time, and it was sometimes noted on territorial maps as La Petite Prairie, but that name wouldn't stick. More on that in a moment. Chevalier Jacques Saint-Frain did not have a huge role in Missouri history, but he is credited as being the first this is where the connection comes in, to establish a commercial ale brewery in St. Louis. It operated from sometime around 1799 until 1813 when it was destroyed by a fire. Jacques died five years later, nearly penniless, and his wife had to sell most of the family lands, including that land grant where the salt works was established, which was sold to a Kentucky settler named Samuel Gilbert in 1818. Jacques had six sons, all of whom played at least some role in defining the history of Missouri and the frontier of the United States. The eldest son, Felix Saint-Vrain, was appointed United States Indian agent, most certainly because of the family's roots in trade with the Sauk and Fox natives. The second son, Serran, became a noted fur trader and helped pioneer the Santa Fe Trail between Missouri and Nuevo Mexico. And in partnership with Charles Bent, he established Bent's Fort on the South Platte River in Colorado. But it is the sixth son, Marcelin, who during my day studying history at university, grabbed my attention. Marcelin was born three years prior to his father's death. The family still had some commercial interest in northeast Missouri at the time, trading, salt making, and then sometime around his 20th birthday, Marcelin was part of the salt making operation in Rawls County. There were three licks still being worked. 
the original one on the Mississippi River at Saverton, and two along Salt River between what is today Monroe City and the town of Center. Marcelin Saint-Vrain lived his entire adult life in Rawls County, Missouri, and he died in 1871 and is buried in Olivet Cemetery in Center, which is the same town where my mother's family comes from. Now, here's why I found this man and this family so interesting. As I told you, the name of the village where I grew up was, is, Saverton. Now, all kinds of stories were told how this name came to be. Most of them ridiculous, like an Indian village was on fire and the Indians came running to the white settlers saying, save our town, save our town, save our town. Yeah, it's just stupid. But the Ramsey place name file that is the go-to source on place names in the state of Missouri at the Historical Society in Columbia, has it that this village was named after the Saverton family, early settlers to the area. That's what it says in the file. Problem is, there's no history of anyone, documentation or otherwise, with the name Saverton anywhere to be found in Missouri, and no one with that name found in the United States until the 20th century in North Carolina. I postulate this, and even after years of continued searching, I cannot equivocally prove this to be true because there's no documentary evidence, but it sounds right, and I'll let you decide for yourself. I believe that after the Louisiana Purchase and American settlers began arriving in Rawls County from Kentucky, North Carolina, Tennessee, etc., they corrupted probably the most commonly said name of the village, Saint-Vrain, or Saint-Vrain's town, or Saint-Vrain's town, which became Saverton. History is one of two things, that which is documented and that which is remembered and told orally. Facts and stories get lost and muddled over time, and generally this is the genesis for most folklore and local legends. Now, last month I visited a brewery in Little Rock, Arkansas, and the name they took for their brewery was right out of Arkansas folklore. It was about a tract of 40 acres of land mysteriously out there in Calhoun County, and it supposedly still stands today, one of the last old-growth oak and pine forest in the state. And sometimes when lumbermen went to go find that tract of land, they got lost. This is Episode 17. Welcome to the Brews Traveler, exploring the craft beer scene across North America, one craft brewery at a time. And now here's your host, the man who gets more MPP, that's miles per pint, than anybody, Alan Tatman. Thank you, Jessica, and hello, everybody, and thank you for finding us out here in the podcasting universe. Welcome to the Brews Traveler. I am Alan Tatman, and I'll be your host for the next 50 minutes or so. This week, we're featuring a brewery from Little Rock, Arkansas. Arkansas Lost 40 Brewing Company. And these guys, while the brewery is pretty young and still growing, they're making some tremendous brews of which I enjoyed their extensive taproom offerings about a month and a half ago. I sat down with Dylan Yelenich and Grant Chandler. I still don't exactly understand what each of them do at Lost 40, but whatever it is, they do it well. We also have a report from Tony that he sent in about a new trend in the packaging of craft beer. Uh, Both Tony and I were so busy this week getting ready before we leave for Ireland, we just weren't able to get together and have a conversation like we normally do. 
So you've got that to look forward to. But first, let's look at that patch of land in southern Arkansas, somewhere between history and folklore, where Lost 40 Brewing got its name. So let's head on across the Ozarks down to the banks of the Arkansas River. And now we head on down the road with the Bruce Traveler. Where will the highway take us this week? Where will we lift a pint and who will we meet? Let's find out. I love the woods. Growing up in uh, Northeast Missouri, we didn't call it a forest. We always called it the woods. Even though according to the U.S. National Vegetation Classification System, say that real fast, the two terms, forest and woods, are distinguished according to their density. 25 to 60 percent of a wood is covered by tree canopies, while anything with over 60 percent canopy is considered a forest. Before the arrival of Europeans, other than those areas that have been cleared for agriculture by Native Americans, a great forest extended from the Atlantic coast westward to the Ozark Highlands. Early settlers described a landscape where it was possible for a squirrel to travel from the Chesapeake Bay to the Mississippi River, going from limb to limb on trees and never having to touch the ground. One of the things that North America provided to these early settlers, as well as to the growing nation, was what seemed to be endless timber sources, not only for construction, but also for fuel. But over the centuries, except for a very few remote places where it was unprofitable to try to harvest the wood, the woodlands of North America were nearly all cut down. Old growth forests that have never been harvested are very rare. More than 90% of the forest and woods across the eastern half of the United States today are second and third growth forests. Some are even fourth growth. In Missouri, we have six stands of never harvested forest equaling only about 34,000 acres combined. Arkansas has a bit more. Like Missouri, logging, land clearing, wildfire, and urbanization have long since eliminated all but six stands, remarkably covering more than 812,000 acres, most of which is in the Washita National Forest. And the smallest stand of this is only 40 acres, and it stands alone in Calhoun County in southern Arkansas. And all of the surrounding land had been cleared of hardwoods and pines by 1900, except for the Lost 40. How the Lost 40 got its name is an unresolved issue, actually. Some think it can be traced to a lengthy land title dispute, while others believe it's called the Lost 40 because it's just so hard to find. Now, our interview guest will elaborate on this a little bit more. It is said that that parcel of land cannot be found no matter how hard you look. Locals will tell you that without a guide, finding the Lost 40 will get you lost. From Hampton, Arkansas, you have to travel several miles south on US-167, and then you turn onto a dirt road, and after nine miles of twists, turns, ruts, you'll arrive at a small clearing and a barely visible trail leading the way into the Lost 40. In 1996, Potlatch Corporation, which owns the Lost 40, and the Natural Heritage Commission signed a 40-year cooperative management agreement to preserve the Lost 40 as a living library. Researchers make annual trips into the old-growth forest to check on its condition, but otherwise, you can only see the Lost 40 with permission from Potlatch, which makes arrangements for any and all private tours. 
So enough about the forest. You can't see it because of the trees. Let's talk about the beer. So here it is, Dylan and Grant of Lost 40 Brewing, and this is your interview of the week. Hello, everybody, and I'm coming to you from the barrel aging room of Lost 40 Brewing in Little Rock, Arkansas. We are a stone's throw away from the Clinton uh, Library uh, here in Little Rock, and I am with Dylan Yelenich, who is uh, hesitantly a co-founder and brewer guy, and I'm and Grant Chandler, who is the uh, quality assurance guy who fixes things when they need to be fixed. So thanks, guys, for having me here. Yeah, thanks, Alan. Yeah, thanks for thinking so, of us. I was coming through, and I saw you online, and you got some great reviews, and I came in a day early. I was here last night, and I stayed at the RV park down on the river, and uh, Dylan and I killed a few brain cells. <laughs> yeah, we had a couple dis- beers. Discussing uh, the culture of brewing and history and whatever else might have popped into our heads. A little bit of Wayland Jennings. Right, yeah. a little bit of Wayland Jennings. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I'll start with you, Dylan. Uh-huh. How did you get involved in craft brewing? Man, um, I was in the restaurant business. Um, I just kind of naturally gravitated towards that industry. And I, and I liked bartending. Um, I liked beverages. Uh, I got some certifications uh, a long time ago uh, as a certified specialist of spirits with the Society of Wine Educators. Uh, I've done uh, the Cicerone program. And I, I was just really interested in beverage in general. Um, and I worked as a bartender. And at some point along the way, I kind of thought to myself, well, it'd be really cool to make one of the things I'm enthusiastic about. Right. Um, and I thought that maybe it would be more romantic to make wine or um, complicated to make spirits. And I think that those maybe are true still. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, well, beer might be the easiest thing to do. And the joke's on me. Yeah. <laughs> but because it's all complicated. And it's, it's, it is. Yeah. It's, it's science. Yeah. Right? yeah. I mean, somebody asked me one time, why don't you start a craft brewery? Because I'm not, I'm not a chemist. Yeah. You know? Or an engineer. Or an engineer. Uh, engineer. Yeah. Not. Right. Or, or a microbiologist. Plumber. A plumber. Yeah. A plumber. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Electrician. <laughs> oh, well, here's what I know about plumbing. It flows downhill and don't bite your nails. So, <laughs> <laughs> yep. so, Grant, how did you get involved in craft beer? Um, I was working in a microbiology lab in Little Rock. Uh-huh. Uh, um, I graduated from college recently. And, uh, for the first time in a while, if ever, I was kind of just like coasting. And so I started homebrewing, just exploring my interests. Did not take it seriously whatsoever. Uh, it was just something I thought I could pass the time with in uh, a, a new situation where I actually had time to pass, right. sort of. Uh, and it really just kind of took hold unexpectedly, picked it up, and I haven't stopped since. Uh, and I just kept rolling with it, had some success homebrewing. Um, Greg won the best of show at the Blue Bonnet. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, yeah homebrew. 2016, yeah. Yeah. probably yeah. the largest award that I, I was privileged to receive. So it was really exciting. Um, and that happened actually right after I started here, which was um, June 2015. Yeah. This place opened right when I was kind of hitting the road. Houghton Brewing is very, very serendipitous, um, fortunate. Um, 
and I, and I was, you know, determined to get into the industry somehow, uh, and the stars kind of aligned. I got a meeting with a couple of the owners, and here I am today talking to you. Well, just so we should give them credit, who are the, the major owners? Okay, so there are four guys, all from Little Rock, that own the brewery. Um, the two initial uh, guys that I've always worked for are John Beachport and Scott McGee. Um, and John really is the owner-operator of the business. We kind of answer to John, and John is very hands-on about the whole process. Um, you know, he's kind of the driving force behind a lot of what we do. He's always tightening screws and looking at things pushing boundaries pushing boundaries thinking of things from different perspectives it's he really drives us to think creatively um, and then there are two other owners uh, uh, Albert Braunfish and Russ McDonough mm-hmm. and again they're all guys from Little Rock um, all with various backgrounds but Scott and John owned the restaurant group that I worked for okay yeah we were talking about that last night yeah um, and so I worked for them for about four years before the brewery ever was an idea Um, I was running their bar programs and John comes to me one day behind the bar after we had started a very successful craft craft beer sort of experience in in town that was really not a thing yet in Little Rock five years ago um, Is it, it's funny how it's funny how the craft beer revolution has some places it took it a long while. Jefferson City was the same way, I'm sure, and yeah. in other places it was just like it was exploding. Yeah, where no, sure. where people here in the middle of the country mostly. Yeah, I like to say that Little Rock's about ten years behind the curve. Yeah. <laughs> in yeah. a lot of ways, yeah. I mean, maybe I sh- shouldn't should hold my tongue in that matter. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, I think that that played to our advantage in a lot of ways because I mean we were all personally behind the curve you know I didn't start even thinking about drinking beer until I was already home brewing and by that time the craft wave had already taken off on most of the country so you were were you guys the first production brewery in no we were not actually Uh, the first production brewery was Diamond Bear Brewing um, and in the late 90s and early 2000s, they had this fantastic brewer named Charlie Krug, um, who now operates a brewery in Virginia, I think. Um, and they made award-winning beers. They won a bunch of medals at World Beer Cup and GABF. And um, uh, somewhere along the way, Charlie moved on. And I think that with Charlie kind of moved a lot of their good practices not to say that they don't have good practices still, but I think that they just kind of like lost their momentum. Right. Maybe, uh, that's my guess. But I, I can remember the first time I ever homebrewed drinking Diamond Bear Pale Ale, and this was when I was 19. We had used a fake ID to buy some beer, sure. and me and my buddy were like, we're going to buy this local beer. And we buy Diamond Bear Pale Ale, and I remember making my first batch of homebrew and saying, man, it'd be so cool to have a job making something like this. Yeah. And... It'd be so cool to make a beer for Little Rock because these guys make awesome beer. And so they were the first production brewery. They were bottling and, you know, pushing beer out of the state. I think that Diamond Bear expanded their distribution model to outlying states even. Um, and and then somewhere in the mid-2000s, I think that steam kind of died. And it, it, it probably had something to do with the craft beer market in general in Arkansas. Right. Um, and, and our owners, and especially John, that kind of ties back into what I was telling you. John and I, at the time, uh, five or six years, about six years ago, really, um, 
there was no good beer in Arkansas. Um, very little craft beer was available. And uh, I would call breweries or I would send emails to reps and say, man, like, I love Deschutes. Would you guys ever come to Arkansas? Or Stone even. I remember sending an email to Stone, and I think John even called Stone one time six years ago and was like, Arkansas is ready for your beer. We really want to serve your beer. We've got this cool bar, and we've got a couple other things in the works, and which were restaurants. And we really want to serve this. We think you need to come to Arkansas. And Stone kind of just, like, laughed us off the table. They right. said, oh, yeah, that's not even worth it. And so after a lot of, like, hitting the head against the wall to, like, have good beer in Arkansas, John kind of just said, screw it. Like, right. let's make beer. Mm-hmm. And he literally walked up to behind me, uh, uh, walked up to me behind the bar one day, and he said, hey, you know how to brew beer, right? And I go, oh, uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Which I had only, I had only ever homebrewed, like, a handful of times. But I just kind of, like, yeah, yeah just say yes. Just <laughs> right. and then figure it out later. Yeah, how yes. difficult can it be? <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you take some barley malt, and you take some yeast and water, and yeah, throw it together, and then you Makes itself? It. Yeah, it just yeah. makes itself on the list. yeah. <laughs> so, you've been here from the beginning, what, three and a half years ago? Uh, four years ago four now, years at this ago. point. Yeah, okay. we've been in the building for four years. And you, you came on right, right about that same time, Grant? Uh, I came on, I think, like seven months after production okay. started. all right. The name, Lost 40, where did that come from? So, Lost 40 is named after a 40-acre parcel of virgin timberland uh, in Calhoun County. Calhoun County, yeah. uh, South of Little Rock. And there's a kind of a a legend to that piece of land that goes something like, even though it's been owned uh, by logging companies since Civil War-ish time, uh, it was was never logged. it's still virgin timber to this day, by my understanding. And that is because whenever the lumberjacks went out on a day's work to log the forest, they uh, inevitably got, quote-unquote, lost. Uh, they could not find that parcel of land. Uh, and it, it has come to a uh, popular understanding over time that you know, they weren't lost. They were just taking the day off and dicking around and drinking beer and whiskey <laughs> in the forest. And uh, so uh, it's a, a metaphor for right. A saying take, has come from for that. Taking it easy. Yeah, right. we're going to go to cut the lost forty. Yeah, yeah we're going to go find the lost forty. Became a colloquialism. Oh, that's a, that's a local saying. Right? Yeah, it, oh, okay. it was. Yeah, historically, it was a saying. In fact, that story was told to our owner John by his grandfather, who worked for the company that was part of this whole. It was a company called the Potlatch. And Never remember that. It, yeah, the, so John grew up with his grandfather and his dad telling him this story about these drunk guys out in the woods in South Arkansas. Um, and we, when we were shopping around for name ideas, I can remember sitting at a table with the owners and having these, like, ridiculous sessions of, like, just the worst names in the world. Because it's like, what do you name a brewery? Right. It, it's, it's a hard thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I talk to guys, and how did you come up with the name? And, you know, like... It, they name it after themselves, sure. or they name it after the town. Yeah, to come up with a really good story like this. Yeah, and well, we wanted something to tie in because all of us, like, all of us, really wanted to do something to be to be proud of producing something from the state of Arkansas. Like in the initial naming sessions, I remember sitting around a table in John and his wife Amber's home, 
with all the owners and we're sitting there and so and over and over again we said what says Arkansas what ties into us like what can we do to make our beer known as a beer from Arkansas um, and and that story just kind of tied in organically to like the ideas of of like being able to make a thing that has a little bit of mystery about it that you can like really flesh out with a lot of different ideas and at the same time like it ties to like the history of the state right. and it ties to this unique story and outdoors then out, the outdoors drinking, work, yeah like, working or yeah, lack thereof exactly that's a great story ties in the the forest of the area yeah. with the city and the and and the locale and you know your grandfather telling you that story and that's really a cool name yeah well and we actually started a 501c nonprofit right. mm-hmm. to go to the preservation of the lost 40 oh so so it's still uh, it's still a pristine old growth forest right. down in south arkansas that you can visit that has some of the oldest like oldest loblolly pines in the south and it is a historically naturally preserved piece of wildlife and we we actually do a fundraiser every year on our birthday in december where we have a band out in the uh, brewery and all of the money from that party goes to the proceeds of the lost 40 foundation that we started who manages that (sighs) i mean the the property itself that i couldn't tell you i I, i'm so like deeply not involved with that part (laughs) so So, well i mean do you do you know is it a state i think it's privately owned land i still think it's owned by logging company it's privately owned land but it's protected okay And so they've, they've made a... And so yeah. I think that the goal is Designated. it goes up for purchase in 20 years, and I think the goal is to purchase it and then give it to the state mm-hmm. or the feds right. and then have it be like a federal or a state at least naturally preserved thing. So how big is the brewery? How many barrels, uh, the brew house? 30-barrel brew house. We started with a 30-barrel brew house right out of the gates. Uh-huh. Um we started with uh, three 30-barrel fermenters and a 60-barrel fermenter, and then one bright tank. It was a, a very big room with a very few things in it, and it very quickly got very full. <laughs> and what's the annual production? Uh, we do 13,000, I think we're going to hit this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, somewhere close to 13. Um, and you've only, you've only been putting out, you, while the brewery was just over four years ago you've only barely been putting out beer for what three years three Three years yeah 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 Yeah. so that's that's good that's good growth yeah in a short in a short amount of time yeah and we're only in arkansas we don't distribute outside of the state that was going to be my next question so you're 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 just in arkansas yeah except the dry county except the dry counties (laughs) yeah those poor those poor guys how how many how many dry counties are there in arkansas too many (laughs) <laughs> Too many. I don't even. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head anymore. But the number dwindles like yeah. by one every year. But there's still a couple handfuls. Yeah, there's still probably twenty to thirty counties. I can imagine. I'm not. Again, I don't know the exact number, but it's it's an absurd amount. You, we, you and I were talking last night. It's like like you would be surprised to find out who is really. <laughs> backing that that doesn't occur. Yeah, you would be really surprised to find out who's it, in it's, charge of that. It's, yeah. it's people that have or county line liquor stores. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they don't want those counties yeah, to become up. wet. Yeah, because they're going to yeah. lose. They'll lose most they'll of their lose business. A lot of business. Yeah, right. yeah. That's a big part of it. I'm, you know, and I'm sure there's another. I, I, the, 
Uh, I think that the churches also have a big part in it too, right. but that's, you know, nonetheless. So tell us about the portfolio here. What are, what are your flagships? Number one is our Love Honey Bach. Right. It has always been our biggest and best seller. Uh, it's and a, it's kind of a it's, a, it's a darker beer. It's got some sweet caramely notes. I drank a little, I, I had a little taste of it last uh, time. It's a, it's a recipe that our head brewer, I guess we haven't talked about Omar yet. Um, I'm, oh, we haven't. I met Omar last night. But yeah. uh, so Omar built this brewery. Yeah, he's um, the original. You know, he, he's a guy who came brewery, in yeah. and said, "This is what you know we need to build to to make what we want to make." And uh, and so that was a, the Bach is actually a recipe that he brought with him, uh, and it has you know taken sort of Arkansas by storm. Uh, it's a it's a you know it's a Bach based recipe uh, that we make with uh, local honey from Fisher Honey in North Little Rock. But our other, you what, know, what percentage of your sales do you think the Love Honey Bach? Forty percent. Forty. Forty percent. I mean, it's been yeah. as high as sixty. Yeah, it's been as high as sixty. Yeah, we do about six thousand barrels of Bach in Arkansas. <laughs> it's a lot of beer, a lot of Bach, a lot of lager. What's number two? Rockhound IPA. Okay, I, that was good. I had that last that's night. That's a. I mean, that's a growing category all over the right. country, and nonetheless, Arkansas. I really love that Trash Panda. <laughs> That's also a big growing one for oh, us, too. Man. Yeah, that beer is... Who came up with that recipe? Uh, so I think it was actually largely based on a homebrew recipe of mine mm-hmm. yeah. that Dylan made, kind of twisted into something that we could scale up. Right. Yeah. And how'd, how'd you come up with the name? <laughs> for you people that live on the East and West Coast, you have no idea what a Trash Panda <laughs> is. Uh, but they're... they're they are endemic in in the middle of the country. Yeah. I don't know the story. Do you know the story? Uh, yeah, it was John... I have an idea, but... Just trying to be goofy with yeah. naming a beer. That's usually how most of our names come about. Yeah. Like, what sounds silly and fun. Yeah, what's, what's fun? Like, we try not to take our... We have a lot of things that we do take really seriously about our brewery and about the way that we present ourselves to the people that drink our beer but every every now and then we like to make sure that people understand that we're we have a fun side like we're, we're gonna name a beer a dumb thing like right. and trash paint is super fun like everybody in raccoon. This, yeah, it's a raccoon it's a yeah. raccoon and yeah. if you, i was camping down in south mississippi here two night three nights ago yeah and i'm sitting outside the rv enjoying the the at gulf shore uh, gulf islands national seashore i'm in the bayou and I'm listening to the night sounds, and all of a sudden, <laughs> three trash pandas come up out of the woods, and they just look at me, and I'm like, go away, and they ran off, and then they came back. And so I sat there for about a half hour just filming them, but they were looking, I had cooked dinner out there earlier, and they had smelled that, and they came up, and they weren't, they got right up next to me, you know, it's like, they're ubiquitous. They're yeah, everywhere. Fine. So anyway, well, that's a great beer. That's a fantastic Thanks. beer. Thanks, yeah. yeah. We change it up every time. I'm, the name kind of does tie into the idea of what the beer was right. was meant to be. Like, we do change. Uh, we have a base recipe with the hops, and then we change one of the hops uh, almost every time we brew it. Uh-huh. And so each batch is a little different. It's going to taste a little different. It's going to be... Um, uh, its own flavor profile. It's really, you know, it was really juicy, citrusy. It drank so well for a 7.2 ABV. I mean, it really went down. Smooth. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if we said it already for the listeners, but uh, I mean, it, it's it's you know, it's one of the new kind of hazy New England style right. IPAs out there, and mm-hmm. uh, I think the name Trash Panda. You know, another layer of that name is fun. It kind of pokes fun at the. Uh, I don't know, kind of perception uh, or 
um, maybe, you know, disagreement sometimes about the value of hazy beer. And maybe it looks sort of trashy to some people. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's very, you know, we think it's a beautiful beer. You know, it's got a nice glow. But, you know, there, you know there's still lager hardliners who think beer oh, should not be nah, anything but brilliant. Like so. Oh, well. What other kind of beers do you like to specialize in, or if you have anything you like to specialize in? Yeah, I don't know. For better or worse, we uh, we we make a lot of brands. Uh, uh, maybe primarily because we like to experiment and push boundaries, and not we we don't like ruts and doing the same thing all the time, despite you know the fact that Bach may be forty yeah. percent. Uh, so we we like. I mean, we just like to change things up, but we're also. I think, you know, Arkansas is new, we're new. I mean, this is all like a growing culture here that we're trying to promote. And so we're just trying to discover what people want, what we like, and what we want to make. You've got something here in these barrels that's aging, and you're getting ready to release this not too far down the road, right? Yeah. What Tell us about this. So this is our Forest King Imperial Stout, um, which is a big, gnarly Imperial Stout, uh, American style, like a lot of West Coast hops, a lot of big bold flavors and um every year uh we take a blend of different barrels but primarily it's always going to be bourbon rye and some form of red wine blends nice. you know well so this year like i really like i i really like the focus of the wine component of the beer it's really interesting to me because this beer ages really well in wine barrels um and uh, we were actually paid a compliment by Adam Avery one year. Adam, oh, yeah, from um, from Yeah, Adam Avery was traveling through the South one day, and he comes to our, he's sitting at the bar in our brewery, and I didn't know him from Adam, and this guy's sitting behind the bar, and I'm walking there, uh, and he goes, hey, are you a brewer? And I say, yeah, what's up? And he said, I just want to let you know that this, this stout aged in cab barrels is really good. And I was like, oh, man, thanks a lot. Hey, I'm Dylan. Nice to meet you. He's like, I'm Adam Avery from Avery Brewing Company. I was like, whoa, thanks, dude. <laughs> Your beers are incredible. Yeah, they are. Yeah. I, I for a long time, that Ellie, that... Uh, that uh, Ellie's Brown. Ellie Brown Ale. That was the first homebrew I ever made. Oh, yeah. man. I, I made a color I, of that. I drank a lot of that for yeah. that one period in time. That's a great beer it still. It is a good beer. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, all this stuff is, um, it's bourbon rye whiskey and cabernet um i focus on where we're getting the barrels how fresh they are i think that's really important who the spirit was that was in the barrel before mm -hmm. and who, what the wine was um this year again back to that wine thing um we're mixing it up and doing three different wines uh last year we did all cabernet this year we're doing a blend of three different varietals so it's it's gonna be i think it's gonna be pretty cool we're actually gonna start tasting it on Friday. Yeah. Yeah. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. I won't be here. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Maybe we can hammer a nail into one of these. Nah, that's days. all right. No, <laughs> don't, don't mess with it. Yeah. So, so when's, your, when's your release party? October 20th. Okay. Um, we do a festival that we started, what, two years ago? Yeah, it was just last year. Are you sure? Yeah. I can't remember. Pretty sure. So we started a festival, um, and we call it the Festival of Darkness, and it, it's centered around the release of Nighty Night. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's the day that the public can come and purchase Nighty Night. Um, and it's more of an idea to throw a party 
and to like celebrate a cool beer that we that right. we personally all like. Right. Um, and so what we do is we rope off the parking lot. We have a stage built out there, and we have bands all day, and we invite breweries from the state and from around the country, like personal friends of ours, and. Um, we just throw a big beer festival and we try and get a lot of breweries, especially this year. Like our focus was well, like, what cool breweries can we do to like, like do, who do we know yeah. like that can come to Arkansas? That would be really cool. Like somebody in Arkansas has never had. Um, and so we've got some pretty cool stuff that's going to be announced really soon on our Facebook page. Um, like some buddies of ours have committed to bring in beer this year then we're just really excited about those breweries you sell tickets for that event we do okay. um you can buy them online and i think you could even buy them at the brewery and they're i think it's a super good deal i think it's like i think it's only 20 dollars. it's only 20 bucks and it's like all the beer you can drink live music, live music. it's a super cool deal it was a lot of fun last year yeah when, when, when are you gonna start selling they're already for sale i think okay. yeah i think all the vip tickets are sold out um but we still have plenty of tickets yeah. regularly yeah. So once you got into into the brewery here and you got going here three and a half four years ago, was there something that that occurred within the industry that surprised you or you didn't expect? Yeah, um, in retrospect, it seems obvious. I mean, when I was a you know only a craft drinker and home brewer, I was the same way. But uh, the the finickiness and, and disloyalty of the craft beer customer it was just always throwing us for a loop really yeah um, and that's i guess that's that a big goes one. back to an answer i had earlier about why we brew a lot of brands because we're just always trying to you know keep uh customers on on the edge of their seat and make, keeping things new and exciting and yeah. that, that is a challenge that continues to to go on persistently just elaborate on this disloyalty yeah, maybe that's a harsh word. I just mean, you know... No, I don't think so. Customers I, I, want uh, new things all the time. Right. Uh, you know, we want new flavors. Yeah. And, I, and this includes myself as a craft beer drinker. I don't like to, to drink many beers twice, to be honest, much less, you know, ten times, There's a dozen many. times. Uh, There's too many to drink the same beer all the time. Right. And, right? I, you know, so, you know, maybe we're shooting ourselves in the foot, in a sense. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, a, a big part of our culture is... Uh, progressing and creating new things all the time. Craft beer drinkers get bored quickly. Huh. Uh, and so just being ahead of that curve is a huge part of our challenge and work here. What about you, Dylan? Something hmm. that surprised you or you didn't expect? There's so many things. I had no idea what I was doing when I got into this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I really, we were, I was really lucky to have Omar teach me the ropes. Uh, I'd say that the work was just the most overwhelming thing just the sheer volume of the amount of attention to detail that you have to have Absolutely. and and then going over to school in germany and learning from german guys the even more attention to detail was even more intense and then i think that the surprising thing for me i guess it would be the amount of attention to detail and sharp-minded is you have to have in order to make things right all the time right. and then the ability to turn on a dime right and and maybe that's not surprising but the the ability to turn a train on a dime right. <laughs> at full speed right. is a hard thing to do right. and and kind of, that kind of mirrors what grant's saying only because we look at you know how people are drinking beer in arkansas and you know 
my my workload this year increased exponentially because all of a sudden we're like, well, we need to like come up with twenty new beers for next year and and execute, you know this strategy to see what we can get for people in Arkansas because already like four years into the game it's like oh cool like people like beer and they like our beer but they want something new all the time right all the time they want something new and and to turn this train on a dime is is a it's a juggling act yeah and, and that is the thing that surprises me the most is just the attention to detail and the focus that you have to have and the ability to just react whether it's with the work or with the to answer the consumer it's so surprising to me because when I started this I was like man I really want to make a a good pale ale like Sierra Nevada. Right, a good pilsner. <laughs> a good we're good. pilsner. We're good. <laughs> yeah, and now it's just like, well, hell, like how many different Have IPAs? Have you got a goes on there? Yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What kind of sours or bitter beers do you have? <laughs> yeah, Grant's, Grant's yeah. the sour, sour dude. We did a strawberry sour that just took forever to not be weird. <laughs> Um, and Strawberries are pretty notorious yeah. for being finicky yeah. foods to work yeah. with. Um, yeah. They're, they're but the, the kicker them. is that, you know, we, it was a split batch, and half of the batch turned out great. The other batch was, like, super weird. Hmm. Why that happened is we have ideas and presumptions, but... Some, some, something came out of the air. And then Kasi was yeah. not feeling good then. Yeah. We do a new beer every Monday, actually. Yeah. We do a thing called Fresh Cut Monday, and it's kind of a pain in the head, but it's also fun at the same time um, so every week out of the year we put a special new beer on tap or we do a can release or we focus on a pilot batch recipe that we're developing into a year round but every week out of the year we have a new friggin beer and it is it, so I can't like we've done so many different beers right. in just four years right. where we're just making a single keg of whatever is infused with X, Y, or Z and I, I like we've done so many that, that like literally on the day of we're just like what the hell is this going on here like this is terrible oh god what were we thinking what do you see as the greatest challenges coming for you guys here at Lost 40 but also in the industry wide I think making it as much beer as we want to make, but staying in Arkansas. Right. I mean, that's we would like to stay and stay. We we, we have high regards for New Glarus. You know, they yeah. they mean Dan, a lot to Dan, us. And Dan and Deb do a great job. I'd, um, I'd say that's my idol in the industry is right. Dan and Deb. Like those guys are doing something that everybody looks up to in the industry. I th- I think so. I think that if you're a brewer in America, and you have to think about what you want your business to be like, you can't not say Dan and Deb Carey. I mean, maybe you can say Ken Grossman, maybe you can say uh, Jim Cook, but I think Dan and Deb Carey are just monoliths in the industry. They're definitely role models, uh, you know, in a phrase. But, you know, we are here to promote craft beer culture in Arkansas. That doesn't mean that we don't are against promoting craft beer culture in Tennessee or Louisiana or whatever. But, you know, we're an Arkansas business. We all live here, and it's a state that we are about. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we're also a business that, you know, is somewhat ambitious, and we want to, in line with that uh, promoting beer culture, you know, we're growing that culture, but we also want to grow what we do here. Mm -hmm. And to do all that in a state that, you know, we all just talked about a second ago, it has like 10 years behind the craft beer culture already. It's a, 
that 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 means a lot to us. New Glarus does so well because Wisconsin drinks more it's beer German, than any it's a German beer state in the yeah. union, and we, yeah. we don't have that advantage here. We, you know, maybe one day if we keep pushing. There's, right. there's a lot of bush laden camo cans in Arkansas. Yeah, <laughs> well, but that that is the opportunity is and challenge, you know. Right. In a, I always like to do uh, one thing before I get out of here, and this is the lightning round. And since we are in Little Rock, oh man, <clears throat> your uh, your category is geology. Oh what? gosh. <laughs> uh, can I phone a friend? Yeah, yeah. Uh, remember, there are no right or wrong answers, only right or wrong people. Okay, Slate or Shale? Oh, Shale. What's the difference? <laughs> there is a difference. <laughs> but they come from the same thing. Uh, we, we don't have time to get into that. Nice or Schist? What did you say? Nice or Schist? Schist. Nice. Right. Okay. <laughs> Limestone or Sandstone? Limestone every day. Limestone. Chert or Flint? Flint. All right. And uh, what's your favorite epoch of geology? The Precambrian, the Cenozoic, or the Quaternary? Uh, Precambrian for okay. sure. Had the the cool third sea, one. Had the cool <laughs> sea That's right. All right. Hey, Dylan. Hey, Dylan and Grant, thanks, guys. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day. Right on. Sit down and talk with us. Thanks and, for thinking of uh, us. We'll be back. Hell yeah. Right on. Thanks. Cheers. 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 35 out of the 75 counties in Arkansas are dry. That's not the only rules they have. Alcohol sales are forbidden statewide on Sundays, except in a few select towns. Luckily, licensed microbreweries can sell growlers for carryout on Sunday. And all alcohol sales are strictly prohibited on Christmas Day. The issue is a bit more complex than that, however, since any local jurisdiction, that is county, municipal, etc., can exercise control over alcohol laws via public referendum. For this reason, some cities like Jacksonville are dry despite being located in a wet county. Uh, Fort Smith, the same situation exists, but it's just the opposite. It's a wet city in a dry county. A city or municipality can elect to go dry in a wet county, but a city or but a city or municipality cannot elect to go wet in a dry county. Occasionally, in counties where there are two county seats, one district may be wet and the other dry. Are you completely football playing? Confused now? I am. <laughs> Anyway, thanks again to Dylan and Grant for taking time out of their day to sit down with me. If you have a chance to visit Lost 40 Brewing, make plans to have lunch or dinner because the food is amazing. Not only great food for a tap room, but better than many, many restaurants. Lost 40 Brewing is located at 501 Bird Street in Little Rock, Arkansas. Tap room hours are 11 to 9 p.m. every day, a little later on Friday and Saturday. To find out everything that's going on, especially about their Festival of Darkness on October 20th and how you can get your tickets, check out the Facebook page at lost40.com. Hey, ba, da, 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 ya. What's the rumpus? Now it's time for What's the Rumpus with Tony. What's going on in the world of craft brewing? Hey there, Bruce Travelers. Tony Rehagen, 
freelance journalist coming to you uh, from St. Peter's, Missouri, coming to you with just my my voice. But uh, today I wanted to talk to you a little bit. Uh, I just got off the road uh, from Tennessee where I went to a friend's wedding. Of course, there was beer there, and I got to try some great East Tennessee beers. Some some may know about me, but I, I grew up in a gas station. My dad owned a gas station back in St. Elizabeth, Missouri, actually on the outskirts of Caps, Missouri. That was my childhood. It was my playground. It was my first job. So I, I pay special attention every time I walk into a, a quick stop or a convenience store. And of course, on this road trip, uh, about seven hours, uh, we stopped in a couple because my bladder's not very big. But one thing you notice is, you know, you, you kind of buzz by the beer section and you don't see a lot of craft beer in, in convenience stores. Uh, there are exceptions, of course. Uh, I was in a gas station in Nashville, which was just insane with a wall of craft beer. But usually, no, it's, you know, you're walking ice caves with, uh, you know, your 30 packs of of Miller High Life and, and a few and a few shelves, but it's basically because there's not a lot of shelf space in a convenience store. But if you're really in a hurry, you go for those standalone ice coolers full of the single serve cans, which have been like that's that's what the main breweries like Anheuser Busch. I mean, you're going to see, you know, you're going to see your Ice House, your Coors, and everything in those big single serve cans. And, you know, the party beers that you just kind of grab, the ones that should come with a free brown paper bag from which to drink. Um, it's the perfect size because it's more than just a measly single serving, and yet not so much that you have to let it get warm in the bag in the passenger seat or or god forbid had to go buy a, a bag of ice and a plantmate cooler just to carry it around with you i mean you just want something quick you don't want the full night of investment uh and it's also a really cheap way to get get a, a nice taste of beer if you wanted to try something different if you wanted to try the difference between <laughs> coors and high life you know if you want craft beer you're still you're kind of stuck with a ten dollar sixer that if they have it there um if you can get a growler from somewhere or one of those pretentious and unwieldy bombers those big brown wine bottles which I, I do love when i'm sitting at home but like not when you're at a party but that has changed um because craft beer has finally arrived in that sector it's invading all sectors of beer but right now according to vine pair magazine uh and this is a uh, a article by kat walensky they talk about the rise in the sale of stovepipe cans for craft beer uh, stovepipe cans if you're not familiar they're about 19.2 ounces so it's about a beer and a half um, and it's about the height of a, one of those 24-ounce cans, but it's the diameter of a 16-ouncer, so it's going to be a little bit easier physically to drink. And it made the news just because uh, Anchor uh, out in California just launched its classic steam lager, the one it's always been known for, for the first time ever in cans, and they chose to do that in the stovepipe because it's a party beer. And again, the, the reasons to do this are, one, it's a good way to taste something new if you want. If you want to grab it in the sampler, you don't have to invest and it doesn't take up a ton of shelf space, so it may make its way into those standalone coolers uh, or up in, into the main shelf space of a convenience store. But mostly it's about value. It's, it's an affordable way to drink craft without that huge investment, within, without buying you know, the 12-pack or the 6-pack or the growler. You can just kind of get one and really taste it. And it's, it's big enough to share, but it's also big enough to kind of just be your own. Several breweries are doing it now. Uh, the first ones to do it, of course, were Oscar Blues out of, out of Colorado, who started craft canning pretty much with uh, in the first place with Dale's Pale Ale about 20 years ago. And they've been doing the stovepipe since 2012, of course, so they've been way ahead of the curve. But uh, everybody else is catching up. The others that are out there are are, are usually the big breweries because they're the ones that you have to kind of own your own canning line because, you know, this is not, it's not a cheap way to do to just throw the 19.2. Uh, on the line when you're when you're rattling off the 16 ounces. You're talking about Anchor, which is owned by Sapporo. Uh, Lagunitas, which is owned by Heineken, or, or like Founders, which is partially owned by uh, San Miguel. 
uh, in true party beer style, the ones that tend to be uh, occupying the space, uh, the, the stovepipes, are the, these lighter beers that are easier to kind of pound. And, you know, frankly, those are the beers that are, that are kind of growing. Um, sales of, like, craft golden nails have increased by 13% year over year, you know, through August uh, middle middle of this past August, and sales of craft lagers have risen like fifty five percent. You know there are other there are other beers in these in these stovepipes. Uh, one I know Alan will be glad to hear is the Dogfish Head. Uh, they're doing their sequence session sour in in the big stovepipe, which is perfect if you think about it for that summertime. Uh, but it was returning towards fall. You're going to find a lot of your lighter and easier to drink beers. Now again, this is this kind of perpetuates the the, the big argument in craft beer, which is, you know. Craft beer will be saying, well, you know, all these big breweries are buying the, the, the craft beer and trying to play our game. So craft beer are trying to play their game. They're trying to go with lower price points, with um, more widely drinkable beers. And the fear among a lot of craft brewers is, is that that's kind of sacrificing their identity. That basically the reason the craft beer has its, has its identity is because they're, they have taste. They have, they have body. They have these styles that you can't just find that, that you haven't been able to find for 30 years because of the prevalence of that that pale american lager and so if you if you if you're basically going for these lighter beers these lower price points you're going to hurt the prestige of craft beers but the counter to that of course is the the fact is that lower price beers are the only segment uh in the beer market that are really moving the market research again from this vine pair uh article found that the the stovepipe can comprise the largest growth uh in packaged beer sales between 2015 and 2017 um, with Oscar Blues uh, and Terrapin uh, out of Athens, Georgia, uh, leading the charge. And that's just kind of the way, I think it's just the way it's going to go. I mean, again, and we, we harp on this every, every week, but uh, I think the deal is that we just, you go for taste and you go for what you, what you want a beer for, what you want refreshment, you want, you want taste. Um, eventually you're going to want a buzz at some point, I think. And so you're going to have to just kind of go with what you like. And if you really care about craft beer, then you got to do your research. You got to look beyond the can. It's not going to be there. You got to look online and I'm not going to preach this again this week, but, uh, but essentially, yeah, the, the, so the, the good news is that the party beers are here, that uh, eventually you're going to be able to find your favorite craft beer in one of these things, or to be able to find a new favorite craft beer by just grabbing one of these off the shelf and being like an investment of a few dollars for 19.2 ounces in a beautiful stovepipe can uh, and get a, get a good taste of craft beer. Uh, and you can wrap it up in a brown paper bag and take it to the party with you, and it'll, it'll just be as prevalent as, as, your, as your bush lattes or, or your, uh, your Natty Lights. That's the hope. So anyway, uh, that's really all I had for you. In the meantime, enjoy, enjoy the beers, uh, and take care. You've been listening to The Brews Traveler. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or check out our blog on website, thebrewstraveler.com. Cheers! Cheers, everybody, and thanks for listening. If you could, please go over to iTunes and subscribe. Give us a five-star rating and write a glowing review. And please subscribe. Listen, like, share, and subscribe. But most important of these is subscribe. Well, listening is important too, as is liking and sharing, but subscribing is importanter. <laughs> you can also check us out on Facebook and Instagram at the Bruce Traveler Podcast and on Twitter at the Bruce Trav LR. The musical soundtrack for the Bruce Traveler is generously provided by our good friends 
Gaelic Storm. Check out all of their music on iTunes and their tour schedule at their website, GaelicStorm.com. Marketing consultation provided by Mission Digital Marketing. I'm home for another week, and then I head off to Ireland. So if I don't see you at your favorite taproom or pub, catch me at the Stag's Head on Dame Lane in Dublin. And if I'm not there when you're there, ask for Pat Dowling, the bar manager, and he'll know when I'm due back. Remember, everybody, take care of each other and the earth. It's everything we've got. And merrily, you are the measure of my dreams. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. And so long for just a while. Mistakes of my own making When I depart at day's first light It's them I won't be taking If I'm to leave this place I know I'll harbor no regret I cannot wait to see her smile I cannot wait and yet I grieve to leave I grieve to leave this native land Across the sea She waits for me to take her hand My every breath, my every bone Have drawn what strength they have from home But love is stronger, I suppose And there's the tear upon the road I've held my shoulder to the plow I've worked these fields for so long This earth has left its dirt on me And made my hand so strong It hurts to lay the reins aside My heart and heaven knows This rocky soil of cursed and nursed Is no place to grow a rose I grieve to leave I grieve to leave this nature Across the sea She waits for me to take her hand My every breath, my every bone Have drawn what strength they have from home Love is stronger, I suppose And there's the tear Upon the
understand the risk I run I love and I may lose But I have seen there in her eyes A rose I can't refuse So I grieve to leave I grieve to leave this native land Across the sea She waits for me to take her my every breath, my every bone Have drawn what strength they have from home Love is stronger, I suppose There's the tear Yes, there's the tear Approachment of people is only possible when differences of culture and outlook are respected and appreciated rather than feared and condemned, when the common bond of human dignity is recognized as the essential bond for a peaceful world. J. William Fulbright, United States Senator from the state of Arkansas, born April 9, 1905, Sumner, Missouri, died February 9, 1995, Washington, D.C.